You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. As we get our, ourselves acquainted with, uh, or get ourselves uh, acclimated to just being in the presence of this space for the next few moments, I just want to say, it's been an absolute joy to be here this week. Uh, the hospitality. I want to say thanks to Barb, who runs the manor. He, Barb, um, you just know how to cook up some good morning eggs. Thank you. And I want to say thank you to everybody who's just been, I've had hundreds of conversations this week of just a rich hunger for God. And I, I have just... Um, I've just been blown away this week, so it's been an absolute blast. Thanks for having me. This week, as we finish up, we've been talking about three things. Uh, we uh, First Monday, we talked about the calling of Jesus. Wednesday, we talked about leaving things for Jesus. And this morning, we're going to talk about receiving, receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, the text that we read this morning was, um, it's been traditionally called the Pentecost story. The word uh, Pentecost, penta, 50, simply means 50 days after the Passover event. Uh, and in this particular story, of course, it narrates a very important moment in the history of the New Testament, the storyline of Jesus, because it represents the moment that the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised comes and fills the community of his followers. And as you can see, it's a pretty wild event. I mean, the room is filled with wind. They're kind of terrified. I don't know what it would be like for you to have tongues of fire come and rest on your head. But it would have been a pretty wild experience. And down below, there are all these people that are watching. And eventually, they're going to hear the story of Jesus preached in their own tongue. They're going to go home and proclaim the message. And from this point forward... The message of Jesus is going to transform the world in inexplicable ways. Stuart Murray is a church historian who says that in the year 100, just a few years after this story, there were about 30,000 Christians. In the year 300, just a mere 200 years after that, uh, it's estimated that there were about 30 million Christians. We'd call that pretty good church growth. From this point forward, the Spirit empowers God's people to go into the world bearing reconciliation and truth and forgiveness. One of my favorite theologians calls this story the birthday of the church. A blogger once called it the day the church goes viral. It is the moment that God gives his people his enduring power and presence. I should tell you, by the way, that immediately after this story, Peter stands up and preaches. Uh, We ended the reading in such a way that you didn't get to hear that part of the story. But Peter stands up and preaches. And the text, Luke tells us, 3,000 people were saved on that day. But don't miss it. Uh, Before that whole thing happens, the people down below look up and they see all these people speaking in these tongues and they say, my goodness gracious, they've had way too much to drink. And of course, Luke tells us it's nine in the morning. Apparently, somebody is shocked that it's possible to be drunk at nine in the morning, clearly having never been to Portland, Oregon. When Luke tells a story, he does it in only a way he could. Luke is a doctor. He would have spent his life diagnosing things. My dad was a doctor. Uh, One of the things you notice about doctors is they see things that nobody else sees. 
They recognize things. They spend their life looking at rashes and, you know, figuring out what that bump is and, and why your skin's doing that. And, they, you know, they look at things and they diagnose. And Luke is a doctor. And when Luke tells this story, he does it in such a compelling way because it's clear he's not just talking about this Pentecost. He is looking at this story of the Spirit falling on the church through another story in the Bible, namely the first Pentecost. Uh, While this is Pentecost in Acts 2, we actually discover that there is a previous Pentecost. This is not the first Pentecost. What is the first Pentecost? The first Pentecost, all the way back in the book of Exodus, is that story that you know, that story of when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. For 400 years, God's people had been enslaved under the rule of a man named Pharaoh. Although that's not his name, it's his title. And it's very interesting in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh's name is never actually given, but the names of the Hebrew midwives who saved the babies at the beginning, they're named. It's kind of interesting who gets names and who doesn't get names in the book of Exodus. But they're enslaved for 400 years. And for 400 years, their identity has been formed around living in an empire of enslavement. Their entire awareness of the world was forged around this sense of we are, we are slaves. And so God doesn't dig slavery. And so God comes to a guy named Moses. The word Moses in Hebrew, Moshe, it simply means to draw out. It's referring to that moment when Moses was a little kid and he was a baby and they put him in this little ark in the river Nile and he floated down the river and then they pulled him out of the water. Moshe pulled out. They pull him out of the water. God comes to Moses in his adult years and says, Moses, I'm coming to you and I'm calling you to go to Pharaoh and you are going to go and confront Pharaoh. So Moses, here's the calling. Of course, as most of us do, we hear the calling and our first response is, great idea, God. How about my brother? Why me? There are a couple times in the book of Exodus when Moses does this little deflection thing, when God says to Moses, you're going to go, you're going to go, and Moses deflects. And there's a couple times in Exodus, it's like my favorite line in the Bible, it's like my life verse, where it says that God sees Moses, and then it says that God wanted to kill Moses. It's one of my life verses. I love that line. I love that the Bible tells us God's emotional journey in dealing with Moses. Thank God he didn't kill Moses, but he felt like it. Finally, Moses goes. And we know the story. We have 10 plagues. God comes to Moses and says, you're going to go confront Israel. You're going to go confront Pharaoh time and time and time again. And the plagues get worse and worse and worse. And Pharaoh just will not listen. And so finally God says, Moses, you're going to go and you're going to tell Pharaoh that if you don't let my people go, the worst plague of all is going to happen, the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. So Moses goes, and he tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh does not listen. That evening, God comes to Moses and the people of Israel, and he says to Israel, here's what you're going to do. Tonight, I'm bringing you out into the wilderness. You will come and worship me in the desert. But before that, tonight, you're going to take a lamb, a sheep, And you're going to slaughter the sheep. But here's the rule. When you slaughter the sheep, don't break any of the bones of the sheep. Don't break the bones of the lamb. You're going to take the blood of the lamb, and you're going to put it on the doorpost of your homes. And that evening, any home that has the blood on the doorpost, death will pass over. You will live. That word Passover, that's what that comes from. And you will go free. 
So that night, Israel slaughters the lamb. They don't break the bones of the lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost, and the, and the, the angel of death passes over, and they go out. They pass over into the wilderness. They are free. And the firstborn of all of Egypt died. Finally, they eventually make it to a place called Mount Sinai, where they're going to be for a whole year, where God invites Moses to come up to the top of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And there, God is going to give Moses these Ten Commandments, although that's not a good way to call it. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the Decalogue, because the first one actually isn't a commandment. The first one is a statement of who God is. The first one is, don't have any other gods. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. The first one isn't a commandment. It's a statement of identity, who you are. I'm your God. I brought you out of Egypt. And Moses goes to the top, and God gives these ten best. My wife, a children's pastor, she calls these God's ten best ways. It's interesting. There were ten plagues. Now you have ten best ways. And Moses brings the law down to the bottom where all the people are. And, of course, when Moses arrives at the bottom, they are all worshiping a golden calf. And the irony is, the rabbis always talked about the fact the first commandment is don't worship any other gods. Moses can't even deliver the law without them breaking it. It's a story of human existence, isn't it? So Moses comes down, and they're worshiping a golden calf. There's this little line in one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright. He comments about this. He says, you know, when you look at the storyline of God in the Old Testament, it's really never hard for God to get Israel out of Egypt. That's never really the challenge. The challenge isn't getting Israel out of Egypt. The long-term problem for God is, is getting Egypt out of Israel. Because we are people who love to put ourselves back into slavery over and over and over again. Even though God has freed us, we love to put ourselves back under those yokes of oppression that we've been saved from. It's not hard for God to get Israel out of Egypt, but it is very challenging for God to get Egypt out of you. So Moses comes down, they're worshiping a golden calf, and it turns out that after Moses had been on this mountain, there was an earthquake, a shaking, the law is given, he brings it down, and they're worshiping a golden calf. Moses, let's just say is not a nine on the Enneagram at that point. All of his peacemaking skills have died. He is raging with anger. And we are told on that day that 3,000 Israelites were killed. Now, I just told you there are two Pentecosts in the story of the Bible. And when Luke, who's a doctor, steps up to the plate and tells the story of the giving of the Holy Spirit, he's not telling the first Pentecost, the first 50th. He's telling the second. This is Pentecost 2. There's another Pentecost through which he's telling this story. And you know what's crazy? When you take Pentecost 1 and Pentecost 2 and you compare them, look at this. It is astounding. The doctor is in. Pentecost number 1 was freedom from Egypt. Pentecost 2 is the freedom from sin, death, and the fear of mortality. Pentecost 1 comes 50 days after the death of the Lamb. Pentecost 2 comes 50 days after the death of another Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus. The first Pentecost comes after God says, don't break any of the bones of the Lamb. And it is not a mistake, folks, that when Jesus hangs on the cross, whose bones were not broken? Jesus. In Pentecost 1, only Moses goes up on the mountain. But in Pentecost 2, all of God's people go up on the mountain. 
In Pentecost 1, the mountain shakes when Moses is on Sinai. In Pentecost 2, the whole upper room is shaken with the wind of the Holy Spirit. In Pentecost 1, it comes after the death of the firstborn of Egypt. In Pentecost 2, it comes after the death of God's only son, Jesus. In Pentecost 1, Moses brings down the law, but in Pentecost 2, Jesus brings down his spirit. In Pentecost 1, all of God's people are acting like pagans. And in Pentecost 2, all the pagans begin acting like God's people. In Pentecost 1, 3,000 people are killed. In Pentecost 2, 3,000 are saved. In Pentecost 1, the people use fire to make their own God. In Pentecost 2, God uses his own fire to make a new people. Come on! The doctor is in. Isn't that pretty awesome? Pentecost is the great reversal. I want you to see two things that happen as a result of this experience. And I I want to look at it through the lens of Peter, because the truth is, Peter, in this experience, this experience for him is so transformative. I mean, it changes everything for this guy. I I just want you to see two things that happen for you when you make space for Pentecost, for the coming of the Spirit. First thing I want you to see is I want you to see Peter's freedom. You know, uh, in, um, uh, th- that word freedom is actually a really interesting word in the Bible. The Bible uh, actually has the word freedom a lot. Uh, freedom is used a, a number of times. Um, it's actually one of Paul's favorite words. He writes about it, for example, in his letters. He says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom is one of the main things that Jesus comes to bring. Um, there's been a really interesting set of studies that have been done on uh, ancient, uh, Egyptian, uh, uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic uh, language, ancient uh, Egyptian uh, uh, languages. And there's, in any culture, uh, there are these things called lexical gaps. Uh, a lexical gap is when a word is not found in a particular language. It's like when a language doesn't have a word for something. We have a lot of lexical gaps, by the way, in English. Let me give you an example. Um, what is our word in English? What is our word for somebody who has lost a spouse? It's a widow. Yeah. What, is our, what is our word for a child who has lost their parents? An orphan. What is our word for a parent who has lost a child? We don't have it. It's this weird lexical gap in English. We don't have a word for that. And it turns out, catch this, people who have studied ancient Egyptian have found it's been shocking that there was in the ancient world, the people who oppressed Israel, there was no word, there was a lexical gap in Egyptian for the word freedom. They didn't have it. There was no word for freedom in Egyptian. I mean, the the very spirit of Pharaoh is the spirit of enslavement. It's the spirit of you you are locked in. There's there's no getting out. You you are stuck. the, The spirit of Pharaoh never wants you to live in freedom. 
The spirit of Pharaoh wants you to live in shame. The spirit of Pharaoh wants you to live uh, never forgetting the mistakes that you've made. The spirit of Pharaoh wants you to constantly feel like a spiritual orphan, that you've never arrived, that you're not loved, that nobody cares about you. The spirit of Pharaoh is a spirit of enslavement. And if there's anybody in this story who should be living under that power, it would be Peter. And I'm going to tell you why. Do you remember the last story? Peter stands up, by the way. He stands up in this story, and he is the first guy in the early church to preach the gospel. 3,000 people get saved. To say nothing of the women and the men. It could have been 10,000 people. Do you remember for Peter? And, I'm sorry, just to add to it, I'm getting all fiery this morning. Do you know what text Peter preaches out of? He preaches out of Joel chapter 2. A text that rabbis for hundreds of years had been scratching their heads over. They couldn't figure it out. And all of a sudden, a fisherman exegetes Joel 2. And I got to tell you, it ain't because he went to Asbury. And it wasn't because he came to the seminary. And it wasn't because he watched enough Bible Project videos. You know what happened? One thing happened. This guy was filled with the Holy Spirit. A fisherman was filled with the Spirit of God. You got to remember, not just in that world, fishermen, fishermen don't teach on Joel 2. To add to that, what is the last thing we saw Peter doing in the Gospels before this story? The last story we had of Peter is Peter denying Jesus three times. He had just finished denying Peter, Jesus, two, three times. And now, how do you go from that to this? You remember when you were a kid and you had those, the, the picture, the before and after photos, and it'd be like, before I did the diet, this is what I looked like. Afterwards, this is what I looked like. How do you go from the before and after of Peter? How does that happen? Of a scaredy cat who denies Jesus three times, two of which in front of little girls to preaching with power. One thing, one thing. He has received the power of the Spirit because God is good. I'm not a fool. You know, I think um, a number of years ago, I read uh, this really interesting book by name of Albert Camus. He's, a, he's one of my favorite atheists, if I'm allowed to have favorites in that realm, and I do. Uh, Camus was an atheist philosopher who was really famous for uh, giving language to a lot of the postmodern thought that we have in our moment in time. But Camus was funny because he actually didn't, he didn't believe in God. Uh, he didn't believe in God, but he believed in hell. Well, it was sort of weird how you could pick one and not the other. But um, Camus actually believed the hell, that hell was living your entire life. Hell was living your entire life with your greatest shame hanging over your head. It is living your entire life with unfaithful husband, drug addict, porn addict, pastor, person who's not very thoughtful, person who can't get good grades, guy who can't commit, girl who commits too fast, rich guy, fisherman, mom of dead Messiah, tax collector, farmer, whatever it is. Hell for Camus was having your least favorite thing hang over your head forever. You know, some of us experience hell every day. We live our lives with our greatest shame hanging over our heads. And because of those sins, because of those challenges, because of those difficulties, some of us, I'm not a fool, I know this room. I've had a whole week with you, I get you all totally. Is that some of you have bought into the lie 
that because you are as broken as you are, God can't use you. And I just want to tell you before I fly out of here from your tiny airport, that if a sinner cannot preach the gospel, who's left? If you are a sinner, you are adequately prepared for a life of ministry. There's freedom. There's freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. That's not just a cute little line that we make on bath mats in our grandma's home. It means something. It means something. It means that when you're in the Spirit, when you're in Christ, there is no power of Pharaoh that can speak over you anymore. You're free. Can I get an amen? You are free. The power of freedom is in you now. And not only that, but you have, when you're in the Spirit, you have a whole new identity. You have a new freedom and you have a new identity. Just as Peter was freed from his shame of what he had done, he also receives this whole new identity. Did you notice, did you notice, I love this part of the text. Did you notice this weird thing about the fire, the tongues of fire on their heads? What is the deal with this? Why tongues of fire? I've always wondered that. Like the spirit is always described in such interesting terms. Like when Jesus is being baptized and the spirit comes down on him like a dove. Have you ever wondered like, why a dove? Why, why wasn't, why didn't a beaver like come on out? Come up on Jesus' shoulders and was like, and like whispered in his ear, you're the son. Or like an eagle, like, and Jesus puts his arm up, you know, Kah! and the eagle lands right on his arm. Why a dove? Why a dove? Why tongues of fire? What's that about? What in the deal is with tongues of fire? The, the description here is actually really fascinating because the way Luke describes it, again, he's a doctor. He's spent his life diagnosing stuff. So he, he sees stuff when he describes it. And he says that the Spirit comes, read it, the Spirit comes and rests on their head. On, on the top of their head, rests, like right here. Like right, 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 like this, like just right here. I, I don't know. I don't want to stretch the text. I care deeply about good exegesis. I know I've got some Bible scholars in the room. But I've always wondered. You know, if you've got, you got the Spirit resting on your head, right? Like it's, it's, it's like resting on top of your head. I know it sounds kind of... But if, if it's resting on your head and you look up, what can't you see? Like, it's like if it's like there. You can't... Because you, I'll turn to the side for those of you that don't get it. Like, if it's resting, like, what can't you see? You can't see it, or unless you can burn your face off. You can't see it. In fact, the only way you can see it is you got to have other people say, hey, bro, there's like, a, there's like a tongue of fire on your head. Have you ever had the experience in Christian community? Have you ever had the experience where it's like really easy to see God's work on other people's lives, but you can't see it on your own? You're like, man, I'm looking in this room. Like, all these people are on fire for Jesus. And I'm like a train wreck. I'm like a hot garbage fire. And nothing, look, all these people are just like killing it right now. And I'm like, I'm dying over here. I, you, I think actually when Luke tells the story, the reason he does the whole fire tongue on the head thing, as I think, 
that it is impossible to fully live into the Spirit's desires for our life unless we're together. We gotta be in the room together. Why? Because you can't see it on your own head. You need someone else to look you in the face and see, bro, there's fire on your head. And that you need to be able to look them in the face and say, dude, I hate to tell you this, but you got something going on up there. There's fire on your head. I remember the first time I was a, I was a senior in college when my English professor in college wrote on a piece of paper of mine, AJ, I know you don't believe it, but you're actually an okay writer. Bonnie Lee, my senior year. I have written 10 books because that woman wrote that comment on my paper. I see you. I tell you, when you see God working on each other, and you see God's gifts, and you see God doing something, and you see God naming something, and confirming something, and giving something, we need to be a people where we look each other in the face and see, bro, the fire is on your head. Live into it, baby. Live into it. You were made for this. God is with you. But you got to, I mean, Peter's entire identity has been shattered. He now has an entirely different sense of self. He's been reframed completely different. I'm going to tell you why. Do you remember, do you remember that moment in the life of Jesus? When Jesus was baptized in water. His cousin's there, his cousin John the Baptist. It's really interesting that John the Baptist, his cousin, Worships Jesus. That's a pretty good sign that Jesus was God because I would never worship my cousin. It's pretty, pretty, I think, pretty good evidence for the divinity of Jesus, if I ever ask me. You know what happens when he comes out of the water? He, um, so Jesus is taken down into the water. He's baptized. He comes up out of the water. And the dove of the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. And then do you remember what the Father in heaven says to Jesus? The Father says to Jesus, You are my Son, who I love, and whom I'm well pleased. So actually only two times in the Gospels where Jesus is recorded as hearing the Father's voice. And in both occasions, it's the exact same language. Here and in the Transfiguration, the Father says, you're my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. I think that's really important because most of us live our life just hoping God's going to tell us what to do with our lives. And I think he might tell you what you're supposed to do with your life. But I think more than telling you what you're going to do with your life, he's going to speak to you over and over and over, not about what to do, but about who you are. You're a son, you're a daughter, your identity is way more important than what you're doing. But the father says, you're my son who I love with, I'm well pleased, and I need you to see. I've got two minutes left in my time with you. I need you to see. When the father tells Jesus he is affirmed and loved, when Jesus hears that, because friends, it, Jesus hears that from the father before Jesus has done any ministry. He has not done one healing. He has not done one sermon. He has not done one casting out of a demon. He has not raised one person from the dead. Jesus, up to that point, at 30 years old, had done nothing cool that we know of. And the Father says to him, you're my son whom I love with, I'm well pleased. And I need to conclude by just telling you, I need to tell you right here, right now, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and here is the deal. The way the Father works 
is he doesn't affirm you and love you after you've done the cool stuff. He does it before you've done the cool stuff. And that before you have done a lick of changing, of repenting, some of you are thinking, when I stop cussing, when I stop looking at porn, when I stop looking at sleeping around, when I stop smoking weed, when I stop cussing, when I start going to church, when I start tithing, when I start serving in the children's ministry, when I start becoming a senior pastor, when I start blah, 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 and you start saying, when I do this stuff, then God will love me. And i got to break it to you, friends. If that is the paradigm you are living under, you have believed fake good news. That is not good news. The good news of Jesus is not that you are loved after you do the good stuff. It is that here and now, today, before you've done anything cool, the Father looks you in the face and says, Hey, kiddo, you're my favorite, and I love you like a son, like a daughter. No wonder Peter can preach.